see me afterwards and I'll have uh, a piece of candy for them. Uh, for you adults, though, we're here and uh, we are continuing in our Easter series that we're calling uh, God's Rescue Story. And throughout this series, we are looking at uh, incredible stories of God's rescue and redemption. Uh, stories that hopefully within uh, we see a glimpse of God's rescue story in our life or the offer of God's rescue that awaits for us if we will turn to him. So today we're going to look at an, an amazing story of God's rescue, and it's incredible because of the setting and the timing of God's rescue through Jesus. I love this story because it captures the heart of the series, and the heart of this series and really the heart of all that we preach is the gospel, uh, and the gospel just means the good news of Jesus. Um, Adoniram Judson is uh, one of the greatest missionary pioneers uh, in history. Uh, he returned to America uh, on a brief furlough following 30 years in Burma. As you would imagine, a large group gathered to hear this renowned missionary talk. And he could have told of the grave illness of his wife and children in the Orient, but he didn't. He could have recounted stories about his imprisonments in many jails. He could have mentioned many struggles under adverse circumstances and the sustaining grace of God in this pagan land. But none of that was his theme. Instead, for a brief time, he spoke of the sacrifice of Jesus at the cross, and then he sat down. Many criti criticized him for his message, but some said we expected a different message from someone coming from the other side of the world. But this missionary, this man of God answered, well, I'm glad to say that as one who has come from the other side of the world, there is nothing more thrilling to tell than the story of Jesus dying on the cross for sinners. And that is the best news we have to proclaim, and that is the news that we proclaim today. The gospel is the greatest news that any man, woman, or child could hear. The gospel is the hope of our lives, of our families' lives, and it is the hope of the nations. The gospel, the good news of God's rescue story is what we are called to celebrate and to preach. And it is the gospel, God's rescue story, that we will see on display once again this week. So if you'll turn to Luke chapter 23, we are going to read of God's amazing rescue of the criminal on the cross. So we're in Luke chapter 23, and we're going to start in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they, the soldiers, divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this passage of scripture, Lord, and we thank you for the truth. It reveals about who you are, and it reveals about the grace and forgiveness that awaits in you. God, we thank you that that, that our forgiveness, our new life, our eternity hinges not on us, but it hinges on you and your work on the cross. God, we thank you that your forgiveness is available to any and to all. God, we thank you that you loved us first by sending Jesus. 
to pay the price for our sins. So God, I pray that today as we study this passage that you would just reveal to us your truth. Uh, God, that we, would, uh, that we would be people that turn and apply it to our lives and follow after you. And God, I pray that if there's someone here that doesn't know you as their Lord and Savior, that they might find their life and their hope in you today. God, we love you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, well, right here in, in verse 34, we see the heart of God's rescue story. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He is completely innocent. He has lived a sinless life, and yet here he is dying for our sins. And his response here is not vengeance. His response is not to rescue himself and spare his own life, but instead his response is forgiveness. He could have called down fire from heaven on these men that were hanging him on the cross, and yet he calls for their forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? It's that same forgiveness he desires for each of us despite our sin. And beyond that, we hear uh, the mocking from the crowd as they say, he saved others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The people mocked him, they doubted him, they called for him to save himself, and yet he calls for their forgiveness and he remains on the cross. And the reason he remains on the cross wasn't the nails that held him, but it was his love for those there that day and his love for you and me. Guzik, in his commentary, writes, Yet it was precisely because he did not save himself that he can save others. It could be rightly said that love kept Jesus on the cross, not nails. God's rescue story was dependent on Jesus' death as a sacrifice for your sins and my sins. His death on the cross, and he willingly stayed out of love for you and me. So that's our, our first point today is this, is that is God's rescue story is a story of love, and it is a story of forgiveness. God's rescue story is the story of Jesus' willingness to put our salvation, our forgiveness, our lives above his own. As the old hymn and the great Loretta Lynn sang, they bound the hands of Jesus in the garden where he prayed. They led him through the street in shame. They spat upon the Savior so pure and free from sin. They said, crucify him, he's to blame. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but instead he died alone for you and me. God's rescue story, his death on the cross reveals the depth of his incredible love for us. His incredible love for you and for me. Jesus lived his life knowing that his purpose was to give his life for the sins of you and me for the sins of those that would nail him to the cross, for the sins of those that would hang next to him. He knew his fate, and he willingly went to the cross out of love for you and me. God's rescue story is a story of love and forgiveness. But here's the deal. In order to receive forgiveness, you must recognize your need to be forgiven. So God's rescue story is a story of love and forgiveness, but so often we misconstrue that because we fail to recognize our need for a Savior. We live in a world that more and more there is no absolute truth, where there is no right and wrong, and we naturally push back at the notion that we are sinners, or that we have done anything wrong, or that there is a judge or a moral authority beyond ourselves. And so when we hear of a Savior that has come to save us from our sins, it invokes a response that is often an emotional response. Sometimes we respond with anger, this idea that I am a sinner or that I need rescue. Some will mock or scorn that there is a moral authority beyond themselves. And others fall down on their knees in repentance. 
And so our next point is this, and that is that God's rescue story challenges our status quo. We can't hear of God's rescue story and not have our lives be challenged. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned. Every one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.26 says that the wage of that sin is death or separation from God. But then it goes on to say, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And that is the gospel. That is God's rescue story in two verses. But no matter how you respond to this story, it's going to disrupt your life. It's going to disrupt your status quo. On one side, you're going to be challenged that you alone are not judge of your life. That you alone are not the supreme being in this world. And even if you determine to ignore God's rescue story, then the Bible says that will lead to a result, and that result is death and separation from God. And when you fall on that side of the equation, it's going to lead you to push back against this authority. We see that in this story. It says some people stood by and watched. They stepped back from what was happening. It says the rulers sneered, the soldiers mocked, and the criminal hurled insults. For many, they didn't understand what was happening that day. They didn't understand the implications of that day. But Jesus' presence, his life, and his death challenged their lives, and they responded emotionally. They responded with anger, with belittlement, with mockery. And then the criminal hurls insults and says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. He insults him, and then he says, well, if you are the Messiah, I'm going to leverage it for my gain, for my rescue. And we see all those responses in our world today. Anyone who hears of God's rescue story is challenged. And they either respond in humble repentance or they respond in indifference, mockery, anger, or maybe an attempt to leverage God for their gain. You think about it, in our world, science scoffs at Jesus and Christianity as foolishness. Many individuals and groups that see their sin called out by the Bible respond with anger, with hatred, with dismissal, or maybe a, a call to ignore or overturn the Bible. Many individuals, politicians, and even pop culture, they say if you're going to have anything to do with Jesus, you do so by playing the religious game to earn his favor. Think about politicians. They invoke religion when they believe it will help their cause. But then they live totally different and advocate for Laws and legislation that fly in the contrast of the Bible. Pop culture, TV, and movies say you only go to church, you only appease God to get on his good side and to get his favor in this life. But that's not the Bible. John Stott in his book, Basic Christianity, writes, If you read the Bible, you'll see that nobody who ever met Jesus ever had a moderate reaction to him. He says there's only three reactions to Jesus. They either hated him and wanted to kill him, They were afraid of him and wanted to run away, or they were absolutely smitten with him, and they tried to give their whole lives to him. They either hated him and wanted him to kill, were afraid, and they tried to get away from him and his conviction, or they fell on their knees, and they gave their whole lives to him. And so the overarching question we have to ask ourselves today is, what is my response to God's rescue? What is my response to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection? Am I hostile and I I hate the notion that there is someone bigger or supreme over me? I hate this idea that there is a judge and that I on my own have come up short. Do I hate and fight against the truth of Scripture that that there is truth and there is a God? 
Or maybe I don't hate that there is a God, but I'm afraid to, afraid to pause and even consider the consequences of that. And so my response to God is to ignore Him and to throw myself into my life, into my world, so that I don't even have to pause and consider the consequences of my life here on earth. My response is to look to my quality of life here as the judge as opposed to God Himself. Meaning that if my life is going pretty good, then God must be happy with me and I'm good. Or maybe I look around to others and if I can find people worse than me, which I can always find, then I can feel okay about myself. I refuse to surrender my control, my life, and so I ignore her. Maybe I play games with God. Or lastly is my response to fall on my knees and to get my whole life out of gratitude for a Savior that would give his life in order to save me from my sins. Do I recognize that I am a sinner unworthy to be in the presence of a holy God? And I give thanks and I give my life back to him as an act of gratitude. So what is your response? Which criminal, which person in the crowd best represents your relationship with God? And it's within that second criminal's response that we see the exchange that awaits for any and all that will turn and trust their lives and their futures to Jesus. So let's take a couple of moments and look at what the gospel speaks over our lives to this story. And we touched on this, but first of all, the gospel speaks over my life that I am a sinner. The gospel says I am a sinner. Again, this is really a sticking point for so many, but it's also a point that when we recognize it, it leaves us desperate for a Savior and eternally grateful for Jesus and God's rescue in our life. We live in a world that is bought into the lie that good people go to heaven. If you, like Luke Bryan, agree that most people are good, then we believe that most people are headed to heaven and there isn't a need for Jesus, the cross, or the gospel. But this interaction today, this story, this interaction on the cross says salvation. It says heaven has nothing to do with how good we are. But it's all about our relationship with Jesus and how perfect he was. But when we believe this lie, we buy into the notion that as long as I'm better than most people, then I'm probably good. We said it earlier, we can look around, we can always find someone that we compare positively with. I can look around and say, well, at least I don't have the vocabulary of my neighbor. Or at least I'm a better parent than so-and-so. Or at least I go to church more than what's-her-name. And we play this comparative game and we assume that as long as we're better than most, then we're probably good. But this comparative game and this idea that good people to go to heaven isn't of the Bible. And it's not the message of the Bible. In addition to that, it's a terrible way to live because there's no assurance of our salvation. There's no assurance of our forgiveness. There's no assurance of our future in heaven. We ask the question, does everyone over 50% get to go? Do you have to be an A student and have a 90 and above? Do you have to be a C student and have a 70 above? Does your behavior just need to be on an upswing to get to heaven when you die? There's no assurance, no comfort, no rest in that belief. The Bible tells us we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible says we are all in need of rescue. And the good news is Jesus came to rescue. James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking it all. 
James says if you stumble and sin and break just one law in your life, you are guilty of breaking it all. If you've done one thing wrong in God's eyes, you are guilty. Your sin separates you from him as much as if you've broken them all. The story of the Bible is we have all fallen short and we are not good enough in our own behavior and our sin before God. But the gospel, the Bible cries out to all of us that we are all sinners. We've all done things wrong, but there is hope and that hope comes through Jesus. And that's what criminal number two recognizes and criminal number one misses. So the question is, do we believe that we are sinners? Do you believe you're a sinner? Do I believe I'm a sinner? Do you believe that you deserve death and separation from a holy and perfect God? Or do you believe the lie that you're good enough and there's no need for Jesus? Paul in 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leads, leaves no regrets. But worldly sorrow brings death. When we recognize our guilt and sin before God, it leads to repentance, salvation, and it leads to no regret. But when we simply just feel bad because our sin had consequences on here on earth, it leads to death. Do you believe that there is a need in your life for forgiveness? Or do you think you're pretty good and Jesus didn't really need to give his life for you? Or maybe if you're here and you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, do you believe that you've been forgiven greatly and that you've been rescued from death? Or do you believe that you are pretty good and you've been forgiven little and God is just lucky to have you on his side? The Bible declares over my life and over your life that I am a sinner in need of rescue. And it was that realization, that recognition that led this criminal to turn to Jesus for rescue. Look at verse 41. He says, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. The second criminal recognized that he was a sinner he knew he had rebelled against God and the Roman Empire, and death was what he deserved. And in that desperation, he turns to Jesus, and he experiences his life and his forgiveness. So the second thing we see here, and the second thing the gospel speaks over our life, is that forgiveness is available to any and all, no matter their past. The gospel says forgiveness is available to all. The gospel, God's rescue story, tells us that we are all sinners, but it also declares of our life that nobody is too far gone, that no sin is too great, that no past is too dark to experience God's forgiveness through Jesus. Think about this criminal on the cross. We don't know exactly what his crime was, but crucifixion was reserved for the worst of the worst. Historian Grant Piper wrote that crucifixion wasn't for common crimes like thievery, rape, and even murder. But it was reserved for those that threatened the peace of all. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not consider those common crimes. But it illustrates the depravity of this man. And yet, despite his ugly past, grace, forgiveness, and eternal life was still available to him through Jesus. Another fascinating note on this criminal comes from Mark's account of the crucifixion. In Mark's account, he notes that both criminals initially hurled insults at Jesus. In his account, he notes that both criminals were, were blaspheming him. And so when this event began, the second criminal was, was a blasphemer just like the first. Yet at some point, he recognized his need for Jesus and he turned to him in humility and desperation and Jesus forgave. Isn't that amazing? Hours before he was mocking Jesus, 
And yet he turns to him and he receives his forgiveness. Jesus came to save and forgive us all of our sins. He came to forgive the bad, the ugly, the recent, the present, the future, and the sin that was years ago. Jesus came to save and forgive us of all our sins. So no matter your past, no matter the burdens you carry, no matter the secrets you have, if you will recognize you are a sinner in need of a Savior and turn to Jesus, then forgiveness and eternal life awaits for you. And not only eternal life waits for you, but Romans 8 tells us that in Jesus there is no more condemnation. There is no more punishment. There is no more guilt for you. In Jesus, you are completely forgiven. Your sins are carried as far as the east is from the west, the Bible says. In Jesus, there is complete forgiveness for any and all that will turn to him. The next thing we see in this story, we see in the gospel, is that the gospel, God's rescue story, is all about Jesus. The gospel is all about Jesus. Paul in Ephesians 2, 8-9 writes, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, but it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. God's rescue story is all about Jesus and his work on the cross. It's all about his resurrection and his victory over death. Think about this criminal. He had wasted his life. He wouldn't live to see another day. He had absolutely nothing to offer Jesus in his past, in his present, or in his future. And yet Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. This man has absolutely nothing to offer, yet Jesus extends to him extravagant grace. The same is true of our lives. There is nothing in our lives that makes us worthy of salvation. There is nothing in our lives that makes us worthy of being forgiven. It is all about Jesus and his extravagant grace. The gospel, God's rescue story, is all about Jesus God does not save through the strength of men. He doesn't save uh, through your money, through your strength, through your power. Those are all worthless to God. But God saves by grace through Jesus and, and, and through faith in Jesus alone. Salvation is not found in our ingenuity, not found in our resources, not found in our good works. It's not found in what we have to offer. Salvation and forgiveness is found in Jesus alone, who we as mankind thought so little of that we crucify. Our hope is not found in us, but it is found in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus alone. The cross shows us that we are powerless to save ourselves. There was nothing we could do to help or contribute. All that we contribute to our salvation is our sin. God does the rest. For many people, the thing that keeps them coming from Jesus, to Jesus is their, their pride and their desire for control. Because it takes incredible humility to say, I can't do it on my own. It takes incredible humility to trust my life to Jesus and believe that he paid it all for me. It takes incredible humility to say, the only thing I contributed to my forgiveness, to my eternity, was my sin. And it was my sin that made me the perfect candidate for Jesus' extravagant grace. So which criminal are you? Who are you in the crowd? What is your response to God's rescue story? The first criminal says to him in verse 39, uh, it says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. He said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This man is in the same place as Jesus. He is hours from his death, 
There is absolutely no hope of surviving the cross. And this man has hit the jackpot. He just so happens to be crucified next to the creator of the world. The one that can save him. He's been given a final chance. And to some degree he knows or, or understands who Jesus is. He says, aren't you the Messiah? And while he understood people said he was the Messiah, he didn't believe it for himself. In fact, when you read it in Greek, it, it bites of sarcasm and mockery. And he cries out, save us. One of the interesting things is that both criminals asked Jesus to save them. And yet their hearts are dramatically different. The first criminal's cry lacks any humility, any repentance, and it's just a purely a selfish, save me today request. So instead of seeking Jesus, the, the criminal looks over at Jesus and he hurls abuse at him. The Greek word is blasphemo, from which we get blasphemy, and it means to hurl hatred and spew venom. And what is Jesus' response to the man? His response is a little haunting because it is silence. He says absolutely nothing back to him. The gospel doesn't even record that he acknowledges the criminal being there. The man has been thrown a lifeline. He had the creator of the world next to him, and his response is to blaspheme and insult him. And you think, what a fool. But the Bible tells us that we are one of those two criminals. The Bible says we have all sinned against God. We are all worthy of death, and we all have an opportunity before us to repent and turn to Jesus or to seek self and rail against him. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Paul says we're going to have one of these two responses to Jesus and to the Gospels. One, we are going to think it is foolishness like the first criminal, or we believe it has the power to save and it becomes the most treasured thing in all the world. And we see the second criminal's response, and, and he comes to see things differently than the first. He turns to Jesus and he places his faith in Jesus, and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Look at this beautiful picture of salvation. The second criminal comes to respect Jesus, and he says to the other criminal, do you not even fear God? The second criminal recognizes his own sin, and he says, we, I am guilty. The second criminal knew Jesus, and he knew of his life, and he recognizes this man has done nothing wrong. The second criminal calls out to Jesus, and he calls him Lord. The second criminal believed that Jesus was who he said he was. And he says, remember me when you come to your kingdom. The second criminal believed the promise of everlasting life. And how does Jesus respond to him? He doesn't respond to him with silence, but he responds with extravagant grace. He shows him grace and forgiveness even beyond his greatest expectations. Look at this. The thief on the cross, he said, would you save me in some distant time? Jesus tells him, today you will be saved. The thief on the cross asked only to be remembered, but Jesus says, today you will be with me. The thief on the cross only looked for a future kingdom, just a future of anything. But Jesus promised him paradise. The Bible, the gospel, God's rescue story says we are all guilty before a holy God. We have all sinned and fallen short of his glory. So what's our response? Is Jesus foolishness to you or is he your greatest treasure? These two thieves were the same in this world, but their eternity hinged on what they did with Jesus. As we have said, we like the criminals, we are all guilty. We are all dying. Now, maybe we're not going to die today like them, 
that our days here on earth are numbered. We are temporal beings. Death is one of the few things certain for us. And like the criminals, we can't possibly hope to earn God's salvation. And although we have nothing to offer to Jesus, He offers Himself, He offers life, He offers forgiveness to any that will choose to follow after Him. Anyone that will choose to repent of their sin and say, and surrender their heart and say, Jesus, I want to make you Lord of my life. I want to make you my treasure. In Him there is forgiveness, there is eternity, eternal life in heaven for all. William Cowper in his hymn, There is a Fountain, sum this up. He said, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain, that forgiveness in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, Jesus washes all my sins away. So have you seen the need? Have you recognized your sin and your guilt? Have you surrendered your life to him? Have you repented and followed after him? Or have you merely Played games with God, hoping to make your life better or easier. Is your relationship with Jesus all about Him? Or has it become all about you? Have you experienced His extravagant grace and forgiveness? His extravagant grace for when you have nothing to offer, yet He offers Himself for you. He gave His life for you. In exchange, if you will follow Him, He gives you His identity He gives you his forgiveness. He gives you his life. Again, not because of anything worthy or righteous about us. Not because of anything we can give him in the future. But wholly because of his extravagant grace and sacrifice. So just a second, Melinda's going to come and she's going to play. And as she plays, we're just going to take some time. We're just going to bow our heads and we're just going to reflect on what Jesus has done on the cross. We're going to reflect on what the gospel says over our lives. We're going to have a moment to to decide, do I believe that this is true? Do I believe that I'm a sinner? And if so, what have I done with Jesus? And so the first question for us today is, is, is that big one. Who are we in this story? What have we done with this message? Do we know Jesus is our Lord and Savior? And if not, you and your seat can turn and trust Him today. With a surrendered heart, you, like the criminal on the cross, can just pray and ask Jesus for forgiveness. You can ask Him to be Lord of your life. You can believe in Him. Or maybe you're here and you have questions. You have questions about the gospel. You have questions about Jesus. You have questions about whether or not you can be trusted. But you just have the courage to ask those questions. Ask those questions today or ask those questions this week. I or or probably a friend that you know that's a follower of Jesus would love to talk to you and answer those questions. Maybe you'd like to pray with someone. You can come forward uh, during uh, while Melinda plays or after the service, and I would love to pray with you. But if that is you and God is calling you to follow him, would you settle that today? Would you ask your questions today? Would you have the courage to, to step forward and figure out who Jesus is and whether or not you've trusted him? You know, the flip side, if you're here today and you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, you've surrendered your life, is he your greatest treasure? Is he your greatest treasure? Is he just a a get-out-of-hell card that sits in the back of your pocket? Jesus gave his life, his all for you. 
We say it here often, but the only, the, the only possible, the only logical response to that is to give your life back to him. Is Jesus your treasure? Or is he a tool that you use when you're in a bind? So if you're a follower of Jesus, would you take these moments to just give thanks for what he did on the cross? Would you examine your heart? Would you, would you take steps to make God your treasure? I'm going to pray for us. After I pray, Melinda will play. I ask you just to bow your head for a minute or two and reflect, and I'll come back and I'll close this out. Dear Lord, we thank you uh, for your words. Lord, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the hope and the life that is available in it. God, I, I th- we thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your love for me and for everyone in this room and, and watching online. God, I thank you that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to come and to live the sinless life we couldn't live. We thank you that you loved us so much that, that Jesus willingly went to the cross and he stayed on the cross and died the death that my sin deserved. We thank you that you loved us so much. We thank you that you are so great and so mighty that you rose victorious over death three days later. And we thank you that you offer that life and that forgiveness to us if we will turn and follow you. So God, I pray for us today in this room, Lord, that we would that you would open our hearts and our eyes to the reality of the gospel. That you would open our hearts and our eyes to the truth that, that without you we are sinners in need of rescue. I pray that you would open our hearts and our eyes and that would you give us the humility and the courage to step forward and trust our lives to you. And God, we thank you for the assurance that when we do, you will forgive. You will extend your grace. You will grant us an eternity with you one day. God, we thank you for your love and for your grace you showed to this criminal on the cross. That he, like us, when he had nothing to offer, and th- th- that you still extended grace and forgiveness. So God, I pray you'll speak to us in these next few moments, Lord, and that you will draw us to deeper faith, perhaps draw us to faith for the first time. God, we love you and we praise you and it's your name we pray. Amen. Thank you.